trustworthy uh, translations of your word. And we just want to know your word. Right now we're digging into the book of Revelation and seeking to understand what the end times will be like. And so we pray that you teach us from your word and prepare us and equip us however we need for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so turn to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It's the last book of the Bible, so in the new Bibles. Uh, it's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one, okay? And it, it's the NIV now as opposed to the CSB. And uh, keep going, okay. So book of Revelation, we're going to be looking at in chapter 14, believers living in the end times. But I want to start out with a video clip, and these are going to be some images that you're probably very familiar with if you've been watching the news lately, okay? Images you're probably very familiar with if you've been watching Hurricane Irma. That's uh, all from what's been happening with this hurricane, which brings up questions. You know, uh, people ask, well, why does God allow these kinds of things to happen? Uh, For those who have studied the Bible, they realize that uh, the Bible teaches it in the end times that natural disasters and other things are going to increase to a crescendo uh, so and so we see all this and we wonder are we getting near the end and all that but but I'm not I didn't bring these up because of that okay the reason why I put these uh, images to, to remind us obviously of what we've been seeing in the news and and things that uh, have been happening before and will happen again is what we're going to see in this passage in chapter 14 and throughout the book of Revelation there has been a contrast a contrast between believers and unbelievers, between believers and their responses to the world events and unbelievers. And there is a huge difference in regard, especially when disasters, when tragedy, when heartache takes place in our lives. Many times, unbelievers, their response is to blame God or anger or hopelessness. But certainly, unbelief takes place. Whereas for believers, the response, it doesn't mean that believers don't have questions and they don't uh, cry out and so forth. But for believers, it, they remember that this world is messed up, just as Phil uh, shared this world in his prayer. This world is messed up because of the fall and that we're told to expect these kinds of things because of sin. Sin has 
wrecked this world. And this is not our home. And so believers recognize those things, and so they pray. And they reach out and help others who are in need in the midst of these tragedies. And we always see how the Christians rise up and seek to reach out and help people. Now, that doesn't mean that unbelievers don't do that. Many times unbelievers too as well through you know, acts of altruism and so forth. I, I think that's because of the vestiges of the image of God, which is in everyone as well as the common grace of God. But this is how Christians act, and Christians are supposed to be different than the world. Christians are actually supposed to look different than unbelievers, and that's what we're going to see in our passage. But before we get to the passage, how are we supposed to look different? That's a huge question, okay? There have been three major options to this in Christian circles. One is to retreat from society. Some believe we're supposed to look so different that we're supposed to wear funny clothes, live outside of the community, uh, and, and not engage in the community very, very much at all. The, the Amish is probably the classic example of that. Um, you know, you have monks and so forth with that mentality that that's one option, retreat from society. But I don't believe God in his word gives us that option. We're not supposed to stay away from the people of the world. But the opposite of that, and we see this many times in churches even, is to be identical to society. That we're just, we want to look everything like society. If, if, if we look uh, different, or if we look the same, we think that's going to draw them. Listen, if you look the same, it's not going to draw them because they're just going to say you're the same and they're just going to stay where they're at. The seeker-sensitive church method okay i think i think originally it started out with a good thought they you know you don't want to unnecessarily offend unbelievers which is true right we don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone but it became quickly this idea of you don't want to do anything that's going to offend anyone so you never talk about controversial things you never ever go verse by verse through the bible because it's going to come across controversial passages and so it became watered down fluff and that's what people get in that and i don't think that's the option from scripture either to be identical to society the third option and this is what i see especially in the sermon on the mount is that we are to be a counterculture fully engaging our culture we are supposed to look different as a counterculture living in accordance to the sermon on the mount that is our constitution we don't force the sermon on the mount on unbelievers but we live it out and that will draw people to the lord and so What should we look like? We're supposed to especially look different morally. Look at our passage now. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. 
These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now we see our passage is talking about 144,000 people uh, in the end times. We've already come across this, haven't we? Chapter 7, we looked at this in, in detail. Who are the 144,000? Well, uh, to summarize from our passage as well as chapter 7, first of all, I want to say that they are Jewish believers representing all believers. What we discovered is that they certainly, it seems to me, the most likely understanding of this is not to take it spiritually and just say it, it's everybody, but that there are going to be 144,000 Jewish believers in the end of time. We see that there's a seal on their head, but we also saw from chapter 7, and we'll see in this chapter as well, that they represent all true believers. If you skip down to verse 4, it says they're offered as first fruits to God as first fruits first fruits uh, the Jewish people had three major festivals that they would go down to Jerusalem to celebrate in the first one they would bring the first fruits of their crops that's the beginnings of their crops which were really seen as a promise of more fruit to come that's what the first fruits are so they're the promise the first fruits but the promise of more fruit to come so if they're called the first fruits this means that there's more to come and in fact in chapter 7 we saw right after that a multitude of both Jewish and Gentile believers that couldn't even be numbered that come to Christ during this last period of the world in the end of time so we're going to look at this as we look at our passage here as these are Jewish believers but they represent all believers Uh, The description will give us principles for how all Christians are supposed to be different. How do we live as a counterculture fully engaging in our culture? And so true believers representing all believers. And we see then that they are true believers, that true believers have a personal relationship with God as Father. If you notice, they have this mark it says, written on their foreheads. We don't know exactly what it is. Is it a tattoo? Is it a, uh, you know, maybe just spiritually something that shows that God stamps upon them that they are His, that God is their Father. And this is true of all believers, by the way. Now, in chapter 7, we saw the protection element, and I'll bring that up in just a moment. But here we're seeing the emphasis that they have a personal relationship with God as their Father. When you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you become born again, you are adopted in the family, and God becomes your Father, and you're supposed to actually have a relationship with Him as your daddy. That's what the Scriptures teach. That's what they had. That's what all true Christians have. Now, I want to say something about that as father, okay? My relationship with my dad was awful, okay? I grew up, my dad never talked to me. He never touched me except to spank me. We had no relationship at all. Now, 
later on in his life, before he died, he trusted Christ. He became a Christian. He radically changed. You can ask my wife. Radically changed person. And we were able to reconcile. So we did have a good relationship at the end. But for most of my life, I didn't have a good relationship at all. So when I saw this passage, God is my father, for some people who have a bad experience with their father, this is hard for them to see God as their father. But it wasn't hard for me. For me, it wasn't hard because what I did was I looked at this and I said, okay, I know what a bad dad looks like. He must be the opposite. He must be really, this is what a really good dad would look like. And he's my father. And as I began to talk with, to him and, and really experience this personal relationship with God, I realized he is. He's the best father in the universe. And so that's true and should be true of all believers. And by the way, as a father, it's not a relationship on probation. You see, some dads treat their kids in such a way that they have to measure up before they have favor with their parents. That's a horrible thing. That is not God at all. He expresses unconditional love towards his kids. And that's what good dads do as well. Unconditional love towards his kids. And so, so that's, how, that's my relationship with God. I got to experience that. But this is true for all believers. The relationship is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. You don't earn this relationship. You don't earn it to start. You don't earn it to continue it. It's a relationship with God as your father. And so we see this. They're this stamped on their foreheads somehow. Now, if you remember back in chapter 7, we also saw that this mark represented their protection, that true believers uh, have God's promise of protection. And I believe we see this throughout Scripture as well. But I want to look up some verses here, okay? Because there's some difficulty with this thing, you know? If we have His protection, does that mean that when I become a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to me? And the answer is, bad stuff is going to happen to everybody, okay? So that's not what this is saying. But what is it saying then? Let's, let's take a look at some verses. Look at Luke chapter 10, first of all. We'll look at verses 19 and 20. And then we'll skip Luke 10, 19, and 20. This is when uh, uh, Jesus has commissioned 72 of his followers to go out and do cool stuff. Okay, And it says here, verse 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. I love that last part there. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And now, he's commissioned, this is specifically for the 72 here, but in a general sense, it still applies to all of us because he sends all of us out to conquer the enemy and to bring people to Christ, to share the good news. And so I think in a, in a general sense, we have this promise, nothing will harm you. But what does that mean? Now skip to chapter 21, verses 16 through 19. He explains, Luke 21, verse 16 
Now he's talking about the end times. Chapter 21 is Luke's version of Matthew 24, which is Jesus' uh, teaching on the end times. Look what it says in the end here. It says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now notice that verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. That sounds like no harm will come to you, right? But what did he say just before that? They will put some of you to death. That kind of sounds like the hair got hurt. I mean, it's, it's, so what is he saying here? He's not saying that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. We live in a messed up world. This is not our home. We're going to be persecuted. Bad things will happen to believers, even when they're trusting in God. But what he is saying is he will get you through whatever it is you have to face. And he will. And that's his promise. Sums it up if you'll turn to John chapter 16 verse 33 where we see that we don't have to worry about this we can be at peace because we know God has our back he will see us through and in the the end it all is made right look at what it says in John 16:33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble right You will have trouble in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, It's like taping a game, the football game, and watching it after you know the outcome. He, He has overcome the world. He will see us through. So whatever we might have to face, we have His promise He'll be there with us so we can be at peace no matter what the storms of life bring. Especially in the end of time and so true believers have god's promise of protection in this sense now in verses two through three we see that true believers enjoy worshiping god look what it says and i heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder the sound i heard was like that of harpists playing their harps now literally it's harpists harping on their harps I like that, okay? And they, so you can see why you might not want a literal, but anyway, okay. I don't even think the ESV does that. But, uh, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. We see here that they loved to worship God. True believers enjoy worshiping God. The very because it fulfills the very reason for our existence. God made us in order that we might glorify him and enjoy him together forever in a relationship of love. That's why God made us. And worship is a major way in which we express that love and we glorify God. And so worship is so vital, and true believers enjoy worshiping God. If you look at the way this is described, it is deafening joyful praise, isn't it? It says, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. Now, we see this again later on in the book of Revelation, 
Why don't you turn to chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. We see this again, uh, and it might be referring to the same instance, okay? Revelation kind of doesn't go specifically and in, in all the time chronological. So, because look at the uh, similarities here. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made Himself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. You see, the deafening noise, it's not the musical instruments. It's the voices. At Harvest, we actually have a philosophy that we attempt with our level of sound. We don't want to be so loud that we can't hear each other sing. We don't want to be so quiet that we become uncomfortable and self-conscious about our singing. And so we try to seek that balance. But we want to hear each other sing. And boy, didn't you hear it, the last song? Did you hear it? I was like... Felt like I was in heaven. It was so awesome. You just listen, everybody just belting out their praises to God. That's what it's talking about here. Because true believers enjoy worshiping God. Uh, now there is something to the idea of different personalities. Some are more boisterous, some are more reserved, and that's true. But if you don't enjoy worshiping now, do you think you will in heaven? It could be that this is an area of spiritual growth for you. And I would challenge you to consider that. But are you open? Let me read something from A.W. Tozier. His book is excellent book, Whatever Happened to Worship. He says, All of the examples that we have in the Bible illustrate that glad and devoted and reverent worship is the normal employment of moral beings. Every glimpse that is given us of heaven and of God's created beings is always a glimpse of worship and rejoicing and praise because God is who he is. Then he says this, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Could be a place, an element of growth, spiritual growth for us. Three major aspects of worship that we see in Scripture. One is celebration. And that's kind of what it seems like here. That's when the Bible describes how we clap our hands, we shout to the Lord, and it's exuberance, it's celebration. Uh, Tozier speaks of this. He says, But this I know, when the Holy Spirit of God comes among us with His anointing, we become a worshiping people. This may be hard for some to admit, but when we are truly worshiping and adoring the God of all grace and of all love and of all mercy and of all truth, we may not be quiet enough to please everyone. Okay, Now, now, that doesn't mean that we're to be obnoxious and we hinder other people's worship. That's not what he's saying either. But there really is an exuberance that comes, especially in the celebration type of worship. There's also intimacy where we express our love to God. David, you see in his psalms many times, brings this out where we're expressing our love to God. And there's also awe. When we come into contact with God and we realize His holiness, sometimes we just bow down before Him, the Bible speaks about, or even are silent 
in his presence because of our awe. Psalm 95, 1 through 7, actually gives all three of these types of worship in one section. So you can look that up later. But it says here in this passage, they sang a new song. And, uh, and this is something we see. We've already seen this uh, in uh, the book of Revelation 5, verse 9. We see it in Psalm 33, 3, and Psalm 96, 1, and many other places where it speaks of this new song. They sang a new song. And so people are, well, what does that mean? Is it some esoteric weird thing? No, that's not at all what it meant. Okay? Simply, a new song is a new, a new song is a response to a fresh experience of God's grace. As we're experiencing God's presence, God puts new songs on different people's hearts. They write them. It doesn't have to be, you know, spontaneous or whatever. It's new songs that come from fresh experiences. But I want you to notice one thing it does say. It says, they sang a new song. It's corporate worship. We're not talking about just me and Jesus. That's American religion. There is truly a sense in my personal relationship with God, but the Bible speaks of us. We gather together. We worship God. We sing these new songs to God. And it is corporate worship that really honors and glorifies God. So we see that true believers enjoy worshiping God. And then finally we see the true believers follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Look at, uh, like kind of Mary had a little lamb. Uh, Anyway, okay. But look at verses 4 and 5. It says this. It says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, when we look at this, we see the overall focus of this is that they follow Jesus. The first thing that I want to address is that true believers are sexually pure. Now, in this instance, it says specifically that they were, uh, they did not defile themselves with women. They were, remained virgins. Now, there's a question there. Does that mean that the 144,000 were literally virgins? or that this is uh, somehow figurative for, spirit, uh, for sexual purity. Uh, one passage that may indicate one way or the other of this is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. So turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul is speaking of the Corinthians. And he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, clearly we know in this passage the Corinthians weren't all virgins. So that's, this is not supposed to be taken literally. This is supposed to be taken figuratively of being sexually pure and offering them as a whole to God in this sense of devotedness to God even in the area of sexuality. Uh, that's possible for the 144,000, but they could also be that one, those 144,000 could be literal virgins. Uh, I suppose we'll find out. But we do know as they represent us, it doesn't mean it's more holy to not get married, okay? It doesn't mean that. So most people do get married, but yet it does in principle as we see in the rest of scriptures, 
imply that we are to be sexually pure. Satan, the deceiver, has stepped up his game, especially in these last days, by convincing people that, you know, we see this even in the church. Many have bought into the lie that sexual promiscuity is acceptable. And we need to understand, to be different from the world, there is God's plan of sexuality, and there is man's plan, okay? God's plan is crystal clear. No sex before marriage. You get married between a man and a woman, and then only sex within that relationship. That is God's plan until they die. That is God's plan. It's a beautiful plan. It really works well. When we go against that plan is what has wrecked the world. The world says, oh, God didn't know what he was talking about. Today we're enlightened. And that's why life is so much better now. And there's not any disease and there's not any heartache and ripping of the souls. And you know I'm just kidding, right? Okay. Whole denominations actually embrace homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle, saying God was wrong in his address of Scripture. Even supposed evangelical churches say sex before marriage is okay. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians sin. Okay. (laughs) So that, you know, yes, we all mess up. That is true. Christians sin, but they also feel guilty. And they try to overcome sin. What we see in Romans 1, 32 and Isaiah 5, 20 through 21, that the world, the unbelievers, they say, no, this isn't sin. And they say it's okay to do these things even though God's word says it's not. And they, they even encourage others to get involved. That's the difference. We're supposed to look different than the world. A Counterculture fully engaging our culture for Christ. Tragically, unbelievers have become callous, but even believers are starting to buy into these lies. And so we need to be reminded from Scripture true believers are sexually pure. True believers hear God's voice and respond. My favorite part of this is where it says that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Because the Lamb actually leads them. John 10, 27 say, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, this is certainly true that they listen to the word of God and follow it, but it's also referring to a personal relationship with Jesus. We hear his voice and we follow him. The voice is never contrary to what scripture teaches, but God leads his kids. Bob uh, and Sue, they heard uh, that we have, you know, our real activity this month is to invite someone to one of the events of the church, whether it be one of the, the women's uh, meetings or, or church service or whatever. Well, his family were uh, gathering together for their family reunion, and he really sensed from God that he was supposed to invite his family. He's, he's like one of 15 kids or something like that. I can't remember. You know, a bunch, big, big family, okay? So they all met in their thing, and he invited them. He really felt led by the Lord. He was supposed to invite them, so he invites them, 
And last week, we had nine people right over here, two different rows of, of his family. Nine of them came who had never stepped foot in a Protestant church in their life. Isn't that awesome? I mean, because he was led by the Lord. He listened to the voice and didn't say, no, 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 you don't know my family. They would never do that. No, he obeyed. And then we just watched God come through. Okay, so hear his voice. Listen to his voice. True believers hear God's voice and respond. And true believers are blameless. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this last part. It says, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, when you think of that, okay, true believers are blameless. Let's look at another passage. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, you all just admitted a little bit ago that you've sinned even after becoming Christians, right? The, and this almost sounds like true believers don't ever sin. Doesn't it sound like that? So how do we understand that? Okay, does that mean nobody here is a Christian? Well, John, who wrote 1 John and the book of Revelation, he explained himself before in chapter 1. So look at chapter 1, verse 8, and he explains himself. And by the way, he sets this up so that people will understand this first before they read the rest of 1 John. That's why you were supposed to read the letter from the beginning to the end instead of just picking verses out okay so first john chapter 1 verse 8 this is what he says he says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so he cannot possibly be talking about sinless perfection because he just said if you claim to be sinlessly perfect you're a liar <laughs> okay so all of those who confessed you were telling the truth right Okay, so if we claim to be, so he can't be meaning that. He, then he goes on, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. We're not supposed to sin. Our goal is to be pure, to be blameless. I write these things so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when you trust in Christ, if you sin, you do have an advocate. You're forgiven, okay? But... The goal is, and so John, when he writes, especially Revelation in 1 John, when he writes this, he is writing in such a way uh, that he's presenting the ideal in black and white contrast. In other words, when you sin, it's like living as an unbeliever. Because believers were supposed to be different. This is what God calls us to, to be a counterculture, fully engaging our culture. One last passage to, to, to prove this. Look at Philippians 3, verses 12 through 15. Important passage that we see of how Paul viewed himself and how he viewed himself not as perfect or that he hadn't arrived yet. Look at what he says, Philippians 3, verse 12. 
He says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal. I, I think the ESV says already perfect, which is a literal translation. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Pressing on. All of us then who are mature, that word is actually perfect, should take such a view of things. So we're mature. We can become mature, but none of us have arrived. So we press on. We, when we fail, we ask the Lord to forgive us. We allow him to pick us up. We don't look back. We look forward and we move on. But this is God's calling. And true believers, this is what he's calling us to. This is the lifestyle. True believers follow the lamb wherever he goes. So the question are you a true believer? What does your life look like? Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. Is there fruit? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But when the Holy Spirit comes at salvation into our life, we are gradually transformed into His image. If there is no image transformation then you may not have started properly. There is no more important question than whether you are a true believer or not. We're going to see the contrast from this section. The very next section, it refers to the unbelievers. We'll see that contrast. But no more important question. I want you to ask yourself three questions. Have you repented of your sins? Have you come to a place where you realize sin is bad, you don't want it in your life anymore, you can't save yourself, you can't free yourself from it, so you cry out to God to save you from your sin? Have you repented of your sins? Uh, kind of interesting, in Ukraine, when they talk about believers and when they talk about their salvation experience, they ask, when did you repent? That's the word they use. And I think that's, that's very biblical, Okay. When did you place your faith in Christ? When did you repent? It's the same time, okay? Because have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in Christ, in His finished work on the cross, trusting in Him alone for your salvation? Has there been a time where that took place? And have you been baptized as a believer, outwardly confessing your faith, dying to the old way of life, surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this picture of true believers that these 144,000 represent, we are convicted. And we all confess we haven't lived up to your standards. And we're so grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of all of our sins. But we also recognize as true believers we don't want to stay in the mud. We don't want to just grovel in our sin. We do see it as bad. And so we cry out, please help us. Change us. We really want to look like this group here who had that personal, intimate relationship with you as Father. 
and uh, who just really love and enjoy worshiping you, giving you the glory that you deserve, and who seek to live for you, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Help us, each of us. And if there is someone here this morning who doesn't know you, maybe they know about you, but they've never decisively made that time where they were born again, where they placed their faith in you and in you alone for salvation. They repented of their sins. Oh God, draw them to yourself, even today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.